So uh, we resume now. Uh, we left off last week, right at the beginning of the Messiah Sesharim uh, over here. We were trying to uh, explore his initial, his opening chapter in terms of, uh, hopefully it's on the screen there, uh, an explanation of what a person's obligation is in this world. And if you remember, I don't even think we made it through the entire full sentence. Uh, when we uh, held off, we did uh, a nice introduction. I thought a nice uh, introduction in terms of that a person, that every human being must recognize that there is a creator, and that once we accept the premise that there is a creator, so he obviously had a purpose for creation, and once we accept that there was a purpose for creation, so then uh, we need to go ahead and figure out why we are here, and what uh, where the Messiah Shisharim picks it up from is how it is that a Torah-oriented Jew is going to go ahead and figure that out. So everybody really has a responsibility and a duty to themselves and to society and to mankind to know why they are here. But we go ahead and we, as Torah-oriented Jews, we're going to go ahead and turn to the Torah to go ahead and explain to us, help us navigate and help us map out, as it were, what our obligation is in this world. Because as we talk about uh, all the time in shul, that uh, every person is special and unique and has a different uh, different function, different skill set, different set of circumstances, different obligations and expectations. And all of that, that the unique combination of, uh, of things, so all of that is going to help define and help direct us in terms of what our, uh, what, uh, as an individual, what my obligation is in this world? What is chovasi ba'olami? What is my obligation in this world? Okay, so that was uh, the uh, the introduction. And then we had read about that the foundation of chasidus and the root of, of pure avoda. So this we, we talked about, the two elements of uh, the two different dynamics, one being a yesod, a foundation, that's something that you build on, and that's uh, only when the foundation is set and when the foundation is carefully planned with an understanding of what's going to be built on top of it. Only then can you be- begin to construct the higher and higher levels in the stuff like that. But a small flaw in a foundation is something which can have catastrophic results. It could be a little bit, uh, it could be not uh, level. It could be not so strong in one area, develop, easily develop a crack. And once it develops a crack, so then the crack becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we also talked about the idea of a shorish, of something having a root to it, something having a root. The root of a tree or the root of a plant is something where the roots also are going to provide nutrients. So they provide nutrients and they provide stability to the uh, to the plant, how where it's going to grow, how it's going to grow, what type of fruit it ultimately is going to uh, to produce, and the purpose of those roots are to go ahead and amazingly with like a, a plant. Not I've been thinking about this a lot the past couple of weeks. The fact that plants and trees they don't really have brains. I think it's as far as we know, and they certainly don't have muscle as far as uh, we know. And yet somehow the uh, a, a, uh, they're able to identify the source of water underground. They're able to navigate their way, right? The, certainly those of us here in Skokie with older homes are familiar with tree roots finding their way into the clay uh, pipe under the, uh, you know, a number of feet under the ground, being able to figure out exactly where it is know to penetrate through the clay pipes and then clog up those pipes as a result of the roots which are going through there. 
So all of that's done without a brain, without really muscle tissue as we know it. And obviously it's a, it's, it's a lot of effort to make its way through the dirt and to break through a clay pipe. Clay pipes are not uh, you know, paper. They're something which are, uh, which are quite strong and yet the roots are able to go ahead and do that. So there also has to be that our, our avoda has to be something which is going to be gathering in from around us. It's going to be absorbing further inspiration and further connection. And that's what the root of our avoda has to be, that we have to be on a, uh, constantly on a trajectory of growth rather than not. Once something stops growing, so then that becomes very dangerous to the plant, that becomes very dangerous to, the, uh, to a person, uh, both physically as well as, uh, as well as spiritually. So that's something which is also an important element, and it's uh, it's not by coincidence that the Ramchal, the Moshe Chaim Lutzato, went ahead and drew from these two different models of the foundation of a building, the inanimate object of a, of a building, but the, the importance of that foundation, and then the idea of having a root which is going to grow, it's going to grab nutrients, continue to inspire. Okay, so now the next phrase, which he says is, and I'm sorry they can't highlight both of them at the same time, that it has to become clear, that and it has to become true, what exactly is your purpose in your world? In this idea of so this is something which is also, it sounds at first glance, uh, seems at first glance to be repetitious, that maybe the Ramchal is just waxing poetic and he's getting paid per word. So if you can throw in a couple of synonyms here and there, so then uh, you know it'll be uh, it'll, it'll be a larger book. It'll get more sponsors and it'll make more money off of it. But as we mentioned last week, that the Gra is uh, is said to have uh, 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 reported to I guess his students that in the first number of chapters of the Ramchal, there's not one extra word. So every word was carefully weighed out, was carefully uh, considered. So everything is going to be is going to be specific. So the way some of the Mephorshim explain this, this is um, coming from, uh, yeah, this is coming from Chaskel uh, Levenstein. Uh, so he explains that, uh, he explains the difference between Yedia, something which a person knows intellectually to be true, versus something which uh, provides a person with great clarity about which a person is clear about or which is something which is true. And this is something, the example I would give, probably most of us here on the, at, at the shear, at least in the live shear, would know this to be true, that many of you, if not all of you, have a backup camera in your car. But uh, as drivers, as people who learn to drive without a backup camera, so we have a hard time trusting the backup camera. So we'll look at that. But very often, we'll look over our shoulder anyways, just to be able to catch with our own eyes to make sure there's actually no car there. So even though you can see on the screen in front of you, the camera shows that there's no car there. But in, so intellectually, I know that I, I, I have room and I can continue to go back. But nonetheless, we're still very nervous. And we think that by looking over our shoulder the way we were trained to look when we were backing up in a, in a car. So we consider that to be a more reliable way of, do, of, uh, of backing up. So there's this dissonance which takes place between what I know to be true as far as in my head, but my comfort level as far as where I'm going to go is, is when I'm driving. 
Those of you local know that I uh, uh, drive a 15-passenger van, and a 15-passenger van, when I'm backing up, there's no way I could use my rear-view mirror to figure out whether I'm going to hit something behind me. You know, one of those little cars that they have, it could literally be right up behind the van, and I cannot see it at all. It's possible to actually back into it and not even know that it's there altogether because it doesn't show up. It's too small. The, the back of the van is too high, and there's just no way to be able to see that it's there. So even though the camera is very helpful as far as that is concerned, but nonetheless, I'm still always trying to, uh, to gauge, and I'm not yet comfortable with, uh, you know, with, uh, with uh, uh, the backup camera fully to rely on it and not actually look over my shoulder when I'm, uh, when I'm backing up. And they say, I don't know this uh, you know, to be true firsthand, obviously, but they say that one of the things which they have to train uh, fighter pilots to do is that they have to train them to trust their instruments. In other words, that when, that when they're flying and they're making turns and they're doing all sorts of things, they're going in and out of clouds. So if one flies through clouds for an extended period of time, so the brain can actually adjust to being upside down and not realize that he's upside down. So the fighter pilot still thinks that he's running parallel to the ground with his you know, tush closer to the ground and his head above the ground. And he may have completely inverted and now he has a struggle that his brain is telling him one thing, but all of his instruments on the panel are telling him that he's upside down. And if there's no visual orientation, there's no way to visually orient which way you are because you're in the middle of clouds or it's dark out and there's no, uh, there's no moonlight. So what do you trust? Do you rely on your brain or you rely on your instruments? And it's not such an easy thing to go ahead and put your trust in the instruments and to decide if the instruments tell me that I'm upside down when I don't feel upside down, I'm going to consciously invert the plane so they have to orient the plane uh, according to the ground, even though it violates everything my brain is telling me at, the, at this moment. So it's not an easy, th- easy thing to do, but that is the difference between something where it's yisames etzel adam, something which a person knows in their brain to be true, but to go ahead and to be able to act upon that and to be able for that to become clear in something which has been examined from all perspectives and all angles and to be able to rely on that and to behave and to to, uh, respond based on that. So that requires a much higher level of, uh, of, of truth and clarity than just simply knowing something to be true. And we could all, you know, as a, as a simple example, you know, everybody knows intellectually you're not supposed to speak Lashon Hara. When it comes time to a good piece of juice, uh, juicy Lashon Hara, so we have all sorts of rationalizations and why we think it may be okay and how we could get away with it and whatever, you know, process we go through in the, in the head. So that, that is uh, demonstrative of the gap which exists between Yediyah something which resides only in my brain, and I know to be true, versus something which is, in, in the language of the Messias Hashem, she'isbarer v'yisames, yisames. There you have something which becomes clear and something which is truthful, where it now is reliable in terms of, and it's reflected in our behavior, that this is something which is, uh, which is a, a, a part of who we are. So this is what we need to, uh, to achieve, to go ahead and reach that point of Sheyisbarer has to become crystal clear. Ames, it has to be absolutely true, without any hesitation, without any doubt whatsoever. What my obligation is in this world, ulama, and then furthermore, also lematzar sheyasim mabato. Where do I go ahead and direct my gaze? So my bat lehabit 
is to look at something. So where exactly am I going to look? Umgamaso, and also that also really means to to look. We'll explain what the, the difference between those two terms is in a minute. But I have to be able to see the difference where I'm, what where I'm going, my destination. And you want to know because all of the effort, everybody works hard. Everybody is doing a lot. Everybody is working hard towards something. And the question is, what is that leading to? Where is that directing you towards? Is it, is it, you want to make sure that all of those behaviors are going to be consistent with what your end goal is. And they say that mabato, the term where I'm looking, so this is, I have to know exactly what my destination is. So as we know that you go ahead and you put into your GPS, uh, I want to go to Muncie, New York, right? So now you know what your destination is. So that is your mabat. Then in order to get there, umagamaso, so the second term which the Messias Sharm uses over here is, that is how you're going to map out the directions to get there. So it's one thing to know what your destination is, then it's another thing to know to have the route mapped out for you in terms of how you're going to go ahead and get there. So like we, like we, we say that um, everybody dreams, not everybody, but many people dream of being a millionaire. But not everybody has a plan how to become a millionaire. So it's much easier to dream than it is to have a concrete plan of how you're going to get to the place where you want to get. So many people imagine, many people dream about being tzaddikim and sidkanios and being righteous and connected to God. And there, there isn't anybody who is oriented in Torah who doesn't have that as an aspiration of them. But as the aspiration doesn't define who you are, really. The question is, what work are you putting in in order to achieve that? What's your plan to achieve that? Like we say in yeshiva, everybody wants to learn shas. Okay, Gavaldik, everybody wants to learn Shas. So what's your plan to do that? Are you going to do a blot a day? You're going to do a blot a week? You're going to do a blot a month? You're going to do two blot a day? Unless you have a plan which you are following in order to be able to achieve that goal, you're never going to achieve that goal. So you have a destination, you know where ultimately you want to get to, but if you don't have a plan, you don't have a route, how you're going to get there, so then there's no way that you're going to get there. It's really the same thing as a curriculum. A curriculum in a school works exactly the same way, that the only way to be able to develop a thorough and uh, effective curriculum for a school is you need to create first the image of what you want your students to be like when they finish your school, how much you want them to know, what do you want to see in their behavior reflective of what you have shared with them and what you have taught them. And then once you have that final destination, that the picture of what you want them to look like and what you want them to know when they finish in your school, then you begin to work backwards and say, okay, if this is what they need to be, this is what I want them to know, and this is the, the, the behaviors which I'd like to see at the end of 12th grade, so at the beginning of 12th grade, where do they need to be so that the final year they'll reach that destination? If this is where they need to be at the beginning of 12th grade, so then where do they need to be at the beginning of 11th grade? And I just work backwards and backwards to, from the starting point to the destination. And that's the only way that, not the, the only way, it's the, it's the most likely way that those goals will be achieved. But if something is just a dream, which I have about like being a millionaire, but I actually have no plan to, to be a millionaire. I just want to enjoy having the cars and having the, uh, you know, the luxuries of being a millionaire. So then you're, you're probably not going to get there. It's highly unlikely that you're going to achieve that goal. So here, the, uh, the Messiah Susharim says that when a person knows what his obligation is, 
So then he can map out the journey of his life. And he could say, this is where at 120, this is where I would like to reach. This is where I'd like to be at that time. And now between that final picture of what I would like to be and where I am now, so now how do I fill in that gap? So what are the steps to go ahead between where I am today and where I would like to be? And this is what a person, this now is going to uh, 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 direct a person and guide a person in terms of making decisions. And then you can say to yourself, okay, I have a decision to make. Do I want to go this route or this route? Which one is going to bring me closer to my destination? This route may uh, may distract me. I may end up, you know, somewhere, uh, you know, getting lost somewhere and not being able to make my way back onto uh, onto uh, towards my destination. So I don't want to take that route if it's going to lead me away from my destination. If it's going to make it harder to reach that destination. So once I have that picture, that final picture of what I should be, what I'm trying to accomplish, then many of the decisions which we make are much, are much easier because either they are they they propel you in that direction, they push you in that direction, they get you closer to your destination, or they don't. And if it becomes a very simple very simple equation, whether or not you're making progress towards your goal, or you are losing ground in terms of that, uh, that goal. And that's going to be true of all of a person's activities. As we talk about many times, that when a person is a, a, a sincere Eved Hashem, when a person is truly dedicated they're serving Hashem, so it turns out that there's nothing which exists outside of Avodah Hashem. There's nothing which exists outside of serving Hashem, and even the mundane activities of our lives, which truthfully are the bulk of our lives. The bulk of our lives is, is, in, is where we are involved in quote-unquote mundane activities. Mundane in the sense that it's not direct Torah study, it's not tefillah, it's not direct chesed. But nonetheless, if a person could, goes ahead and sees how the totality of their life is just one expression of Avodah Hashem, then you could go ahead and you could, as we say, sanctify the mundane, and you can elevate things, and you can make them into a form of your Avodah Hashem. And that's going to be taking care of your family, and that's going to be all sorts of uh, you know different things. When I go shopping, and when I go cleaning, and when I do cooking, and when I do all of the different activities which we do, so all of that can be an essential part, can be elevated into a form of avodas Hashem. But it really all depends on the type of perspective which one brings to the table or brings to that uh, brings to that activity. So that's what the uh, the Ramchal is trying to emphasize over there. Rabbi, what's that word? All male. Amel is hard work. Okay. Amelus is, uh, is hard work. Then he says, um, He says an important point, and this is something which, as we mentioned uh, uh, last week, I think, that uh, it's a fundamental uh, principle in the writings of the Ramchal, and anybody who's read anything from Arya Kaplan will recognize this to, to, to be true, because Arya Kaplan, many of Arya Kaplan's uh, books revolve around this, uh, this particular point. But he says, what we have been instructed by Chazal, what our sages have taught us is, So what was the purpose of creation of mankind? What is the goal that God has for mankind in this world. So the goal ultimately is to uh, to derive pleasure from God. That's what that would mean, translate as literally. And to benefit, 
Meziv Shechina, so from the shine of the divine presence, of the Shechina itself. So to be able to interact with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and to be able to um, to be able to connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and to be able to enjoy those interactions, so that ultimately is the purpose for which we were created. So there may be things which we do. You may we may be a lawyer, an engineer, a therapist, an accountant, all sorts of different things which we do. But ultimately, all of those need to be tools which we use in order to better connect with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Because at the end of the day, everything that we do is in order to connect with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. And again, that the Rav Chatzko Levenstein he writes. Let me read you this quote. He says, that the primary merit, the primary benefit that a person has in this world is to be close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's what it's all about. That's, that's what we're striving for. That's what the purpose of life is for. That's why we were created. In all of the mitzvahs which we do, the many mitzvahs which we do, the Torah and the Torah which we study, so they are tools, or they are a means to the end. So it's not as if this mitzvah is the end, or this Torah study, this mesechta is the end, is the final goal. These are tools, or these are uh, uh, parts of the journey along the way. These are uh, uh, mechanisms which we use to be able to reach the final destination, which is to get close to God and to be able to enjoy that close proximity, to realize the specialness of it, and to be able to value being in such close proximity to such a person. And in order to be able to reach that step of being able to enjoy being in God's presence, so we do that by performing mitzvahs. Something we talked about in the drush a couple of weeks ago, that one of the things which is absolutely necessary, an absolute necessary prerequisite, is not simply to do the mitzvahs, although certainly that is a necessary prerequisite, but one has to be able to think about the mitzvahs as well and think about what lesson the mitzvah is intended to convey and how the performance of that mitzvah or the compliance with that halacha, how is that going to draw you closer to Hashem? Because at the end of the day, that's what all mitzvahs and all Torah study uh, is designed to achieve, is designed to accomplish, is to bring us closer to Hashem. And that is without the, without those, uh, so we can't, you know, those who uh, uh, want to say that they feel Jewish inside and they don't need to do mitzvahs and they don't need to, to, to study Torah. And nonetheless, they feel deeply connected to, uh, to God. So that's a wonderful sentiment. And, uh, you know, I wish them more power in doing so. But many people, uh, you know, take psychedelics and feel at one with nature as a result of that. I'm not saying that they're wrong, but it is something which people will report uh, happening when they go ahead and they take their uh, their psychedelics or they take their uh, whatever their drugs it is is that they feel at one with the universe. You know, you can hear a person go ahead and describe feeling at one with the universe. So it's a wonderful sentiment, but at the end of the day, they've got nothing to show for that. You know, it's just a feeling which is inside of them. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to tap into something which ultimately is eternal, and that's one of the things which they also talk about is the lisaneg al Hashem that the ability to derive pleasure from God, and this is also something that Rav Noach Weinberg from Esha Torah, he would also emphasize, and he would say that God had created mankind to find pleasure. 
Now the question is, what pleasure is, are we supposed to have? But man is designed in order to, to experience a pleasure, but we can't confuse physical pleasure and spiritual pleasure. Those are very two different uh, things. And although one may give us a certain sense of what pleasure could be, but there's no way that anything which is physical in pleasure is going to compare in any way, shape, or form to the eternal pleasure of being able to be in God's, uh, God's presence. But these two phrases, to derive pleasure from God, and to benefit from the beauty of his, or the shine of the divine presence, so the Mepharshim say that they refers to Olam Hazeh and Olam Haba that we can already go ahead and we can begin to derive pleasure in this world, even in this, wor- this world, and this is reminiscent of the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos, which says, that the, uh, the spiritual uh, high or the, uh, the uh, experience that one could feel, the emotional experience that one could feel connecting to God by doing tshuva and maisim tovim and good deeds in this world, it could actually be more pleasurable than the entirety of Olam Haba. So we often think of things as that really this world is not so uh, is not so important. There's no pleasure, which I'm really going to have in my avodas Hashem in this world. This world is to work hard and to put in that effort to, to study Torah and all of that. And really, the benefit is going to be what's going to be in uh, in, in, in in Olam Haba. But that misses out on what the type of pleasure that one could experience in this world. In this world is also a place where one could derive an enormous amount of pleasure by serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu and doing mitzvahs and studying Torah, assuming that one is able to tap into that potential in a very powerful way. Uh, if you, uh, I assume everybody would be familiar with the, the Reichman family from Toronto. It's a very wealthy family, Reichman from, uh, from Toronto. You know, for they, you know, their finances went up and down or whatever it is. But during one of their times when they were enormously, enormously uh, wealthy, so one of the Reichmans met with Rav Shach. And I think, the, I think the way the story goes, I don't remember the, the beginning part of the story so well, but the, uh, the, the, the person said that uh, the Rosh Hashivas, uh, you know, Olam Haba is going to be much greater than mine. You know, something like that, because of his Torah and everything which he does. So Shach's response to, to this, uh, this Reichman fellow was, he says, What's, who's going to have a bigger Olam Haba? Because Reichman was supporting Torah by you know, building yeshivas and financially supporting yeshivas, and he was giving an enormous amount of money in order to make sure that Torah was studied. So if Shach is alleged to have said to him, who's going to have a bigger Olam Haba, you or me? Then I don't know. Whether my teaching or your financial support of Olam Haba, who, who, financial support of Torah, I don't know which generates a greater Olam Haba. But I can tell you this, my Olam Haza is much better than yours. And he meant because I have the opportunity to study Torah much of the day. You're working much of the day. So I don't know anything about Olam Haba. But I know that my Olam Haza is much more enjoyable than your Olam Haza because of my opportunity to go ahead and study Torah. So that's what the Mishnah there in Pirkei Avos is really saying in terms of somebody who could tap into the pleasure of this world by doing tshuva and maisim tovim, that itself allows you to be able to begin to have a taste of and be able to enjoy the uh, the true pleasure of this world, Hashem, which is the reason why we were created in the first place anyways. Because 
being able to be in God's presence and enjoy being in God's presence. This ultimately is the true pleasure which exists. And they say that mean when we say that this is uh, that uh, it's not only uh, because in this world, but it is the eternal pleasure. And this is one of the ways by which we differentiate between a physical pleasure and a spiritual pleasure. Physical pleasure is something which uh, it feels good in the moment. You know, you go to a fancy restaurant and you get a good steak or something like that, whatever your good steak is. So while you're eating it, you enjoy it an hour later. So it's just a memory. You know, you don't really, you may feel full or whatever, but uh, it, it's something which is is fleeting and something which is enjoyed in the moment. And then as soon as the moment is over, so then, uh, you know, you're no longer experiencing that pleasure. So then it's gone and you have nothing to uh, to go ahead and show for it. Spiritual pleasure is something which lasts with you for eternity. It doesn't go away. And it's something which uh, which continues to uh, to provide pleasure, just knowing that, uh, that that's what uh, one has, uh, has achieved and accomplished and has developed that close proximity to, uh, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You know, people think, you know, when you see um, in our age, so many people can look at the urge that younger people have to take selfies with like famous people or other people as like a silly thing. Why do you need to go ahead and take a selfie? Everybody's just taking selfies of everything which is going on. So, uh, but there, there's something which is deep and profound about it. And when you see people doing that, so you should take a moment and you should uh, you should pause and think about it. And that is, is that a person goes ahead and they want to, they want to eternalize the moment which they find themselves in at this, at this time. So if they see an athlete, they see a TV star, they see a movie star, they see a famous politician. So everybody wants to go ahead and take a selfie because if you could go ahead, you could take that selfie with the person. So now I have for eternity, there's an eternal record of my connection with this famous person. And in the brain, in the psychology of things, so we think that if I could connect to a famous person, so that allows me to tap into something which is going to be eternal, and that way I will live on beyond my physical existence in this world. I'm now part of the permanent human record, just by virtue of the fact that I'm connected with the, with the, with, with that person. And that's why, that's what motivates people to want to go ahead and record everything. Because if you record everything, so now there's a permanent record of everything. Now we know that nothing really gets erased. And, you know, 20, 30 years later, somebody will go ahead and uh, find that picture, find that uh, video, and they'll pull it out and they'll, you know, whatever the response will be at that time. However, they'll go ahead and use it. So in the same way, we really want to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a similar way. Not taking a selfie because he doesn't show up so well in selfies. <laughs> he's, he's not so photo, uh, photogenic. But in terms of being able to be close to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so being in that close proximity to, uh, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's something which is that greatest pleasure because it allows us to be able to tap into the eternal. And something which is truly eternal, something which will outlast all of time as far as how time is measured, and that comes about through the study of Torah and the performance of mitzvahs. So this is something which we have the ability to enjoy and experience in this uh, in this world. And va'idun hagadol mikol ha'idunim shechon limatzei, and this is another form of this word of the greatest pleasure uh, that one is going to be able to. This is a the the neshama is going to be able to 
uh, beyond the physical pleasure of the body, but the spiritual pleasure of the neshama. So this is something also which is powerful, and this is the nourishment, which ultimately the uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the soul is going to be uh, needs as well in order for it to be nourished, in order for the soul to be healthy. Just like in a physical sense, you have to eat regularly and you have to eat good foods, foods which are healthy and provide the necessary nutrients for a person to have energy and to a person to be functional during the, during the day. So in the same way, the neshama also needs to be nourished on a regular basis. Generally, we look at that in terms of tefillah. So um, much of history, they didn't eat three meals a day. It's a relatively recent phenomena, but we use it to, to, to illustrate the idea that just like nowadays, we assume that in order for a person to be healthy, they need to eat three meals a day. You need to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So in the same way, the neshama needs also uh, nourishment, and you need to daven shachris, you need to daven mincha, you need to daven marv. That's the way that the soul gets re-nourished with uh, the nutrients which it needs in order to be fully functional and fully uh, uh, have the uh, to be to be able to achieve its goals. Umakom ha'idun. Now the truth is makom ha'idun azeh be'emes hu olam haba. Now the truth is is that. The, this uh, pleasure, which is in store for a person, its primary uh, place of being able to enjoy is Olam Haba. Because the creation of Olam Haba was, in its original design, it was done in order to facilitate or in order to allow a person to be able to, uh, to, be able to experience that pleasure. So God didn't create this world for pleasure. Olam Haba was created in order to get the benefits of all of our efforts in this world. So that was its function, that was its design, and that's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu created it in the first place. So ultimately, and we'll see more about this next week probably, but ultimately, the goal is to reach the pleasure which we will experience in Olam Haba. But, but the route in the way that a person is going to be able to reach that destination of Olam Haba, which is a world which is of pleasure, being able to enjoy proximity to God and all of the benefits of that, the only way to be able to get to that point is, in, is through this world. It has to be, you have to go through this world and you have to achieve in this world in order to be able to, to achieve that and to accomplish that. And a person uh, who thinks that they're going to be able to just sort of coast their way through this world, and they're not going to have to put an effort, and they're not going to have to try in order to accomplish, in order to achieve, so that person ultimately is fooling themselves, and they're not going to be able to tap into, they're not going to be able to achieve the greatest pleasure. It's like a person who would love to be able to run a marathon, just doesn't want to do the training for the marathon. So to wake up the morning of the marathon and think you're just going to, you know, put on your gym shoes and just start running and you're going to run an entire marathon without any training. So that's absurd. You know, nobody actually, uh, I shouldn't say nobody does that, but most people are incapable of just waking up the morning of the race and being able to uh, to run that uh, that race. And in the same way, uh, a person is not going to be able to fully enjoy Olam Haba without putting in the effort in order to be able to earn their spot there. Uh, and that's what this world is about: is the effort which we put into this world in order to uh, in order to accomplish it.
Now he says, I just want to highlight one thing, which he says from uh, Nesson, from the, uh, the, the altar of Slabodka. Nesson Sifinkel, uh, which we enjoy because we, uh, his inspiration gave us the name for Nasi, uh, and his, uh, the inspiration of his life. And he says, he also points out the idea that uh, sometimes people think that in this world, so we have to be ascetic. We have to separate ourselves from the physical pleasures of this world, and we're supposed to, in fact, perhaps deny ourselves pleasures in this world, because the real place for pleasure is in the world to come, and we don't want to go ahead and start making withdrawals from our pleasure account in this world, where the pleasures are going to be fleeting, at the expense of having that uh, in the world to come. Right, you tap into your retirement account, which will have compounding interest because you want to go ahead and buy some Slurpees. So you may enjoy the Slurpee in the moment, but when it actually comes time to retire and then you want to pay your bills or you want to you know, do whatever you want to do with that money, suddenly it's all gone. You realize what, what a waste that was, uh, you know, squandering all of my retirement money on a bunch of Slurpees, and now I've got nothing to, uh, to show for it. So some people think that that's what needs to be done in this world. But the truth is, so the uh, Rev. Nelson Sifinkel, the author of Slabodka, says that this world is actually a world which is filled with all sorts of pleasure. And it was designed in order to go ahead and experience that pleasure. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why aren't we experiencing that pleasure? Undoubtedly, everybody here has eaten something today. Everybody has lived a day in your life which was filled with pleasure. But if we were to go ahead and send out a quick poll, which we, we would theoretically be able to do on WhatsApp, but I won't do that now. But if we were to send out a poll and say on a scale of one to 10, one being the lowest and 10 being the highest, how pleasurable was your day today? So I don't know if anybody would rank higher than a two or a three. Today was a regular day. It wasn't even such a sunny day. It was too hot today. It rained a little bit today by us. You know, there's a lot of reasons why we would not necessarily rank today as a particularly high day in terms of pleasure. But he says, the author of Slabodka says, the reason why we would grade the day so low rather than high is based on what we refer to as hergel, is because we're so used to the things which we do, which we enjoy, that it loses the enjoyment. We lose the pleasure out of it when we do something too often. So you can take a number of examples over here. But I don't know if any of you have ever had um, stomach issues or, uh, or bowel issues or something like that, where you may not have been able to uh, relieve yourself for a period of time. And sometimes if that goes on for an extended period of time, it can be very, very painful. And depending on what exactly the issue is, it may resolve, it may require medical intervention, whatever is going to be, but it can be terribly, terribly di- uh, uncomfortable for a long period of time in the event that the digestive system is not working optimally. And then suddenly when there's a, when a person is able, when the digestion system, digestive system is back online and one is able to relieve themselves, so that is, it's literally, it's a great simcha. It's a great joy that things are now working again and everything is running as it did. And the person may say the most inspired asher yatsar at that point. They'll say that bracha with kavana can take them 15 minutes to say the asher yatsar bracha after such a, an episode because they weren't well for a while and they struggled with something which is so basic. And for the next day or two, they're going to be so excited every time they have an opportunity to say asher yatsar because it's such a simcha by them because the body's now healed and it's now functioning normally. 
Now that person has excitement because they had an illness. The illness did not allow the digestive system to function normally. And therefore they struggled with that. And now that it's been restored, it's a huge simcha. The reason why for the rest of us it's not a simcha is because we didn't struggle with it recently. So if we didn't struggle with it recently, so we say ho ha, I mean, we just consider it to be a regular part of life and we don't enjoy it. And you know, the phenomena of having food in a refrigerator or in a pantry, or just having food which is available, is an enormous bracha. We know that for the overwhelming majority of human history, so obtaining food was always a struggle, was a daily struggle. There were no refrigerators, there's no freezers, there's no pre-processed food. Everything you wanted to eat, you had to obtain, you had to prepare, you had to do all of that on your own, and much of the day was spent you know, uh, uh, hunting and gathering. That's that's what they spent their days doing because if they were going to eat, they had to go ahead and they had to hunt and gather and do all of that, uh, they, do that personally. You couldn't just run over to, to the store or just call Uber Eats and just order it on, a, you know, an app on your phone. So here we have food which is ready-made, food which is readily available in plentiful supply, and we should feel enormously, enormously blessed by all of those things, and then we get to the store, and they don't have the specific type of potato chip that I want, and I wanted that type of barbecue chip, and not that brand of barbecue chip, and I want it to be the Cajun barbecue, not the sweet honey barbecue, or whatever, you know, our, our preferences are, is, uh uh-huh, forget it, I don't want the chips altogether. You know, it's a, we're, we're so spoiled that it, we don't even realize how spoiled we are, but we are incredibly spoiled, but that spoiledness takes away the pleasure which we should be experiencing day in and day out in our lives. And that's something which is, that was all HaKadosh Baruch Hu created, and Rabbi Victor Miller talks about this at, at length, but he talks about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's one thing to go ahead and to say that I'm going to give you food which, has, which uh, you need to eat in order to be healthy. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have just as easily made all food bland. Why do you need to create sweet-tasting food, good-tasting food? You could have said, listen, this is what you need, right? Nobody asks the car whether it wants a yummy-tasting gasoline or wants an icky-tasting gasoline. doesn't matter. We're just putting gasoline in, and that's going to fuel the car, and the car is going to run. And the the car doesn't get a choice which flavor gasoline it would like. I'm in the mood for Coke-flavored gasoline today, or I'd like 7-Up-flavored gasoline today. It's gasoline. You just put it in. uh, It's functional. It's not something which is pleasurable. Because Baruch Hu didn't create the world in that way. He created not only foods which provide nutrients, vitamins and minerals and nutrients and all of those things, but he created it very often delicious tasting. So it's not only that we're getting the nutrients that we need and the vitamins that we need in order to have energy to make it through the day in order to serve Hashem, but he gave us an additional hug or additional kiss on top of that by making it taste yummy. So now it's not like medicine. Okay, I got to take my med. I don't want to take my medicine, but I know it's important to take my medicine. So I'm going to go ahead. I'll take the medicine and I just put it in the back of my my mouth and I swallow. Take a little drink and I swallow it down. Okay, I got it down. I got the medicine down. Nobody likes to do that. Nobody looks forward to taking that medication. But Baruch Hu didn't create food that way. He created food to be yummy tasting so that not only do we get the necessary vitamins and minerals and nutrients and all that stuff, but on top of that, we have the opportunity to enjoy it as well. So this is a special gift. This is part of the tainu, the pleasure, which we're supposed to experience in this world, which we have to train ourselves to be more appreciative of that, rather than taking it as ho-hum and creating an expectation out of it, because the expectation in the overexposure to it, to those pleasures, that actually dulls our senses. 
and it takes away our ability to uh, to enjoy. And we need to spend some time thinking about it and making sure that we don't overlook all of the uh, the pleasures which are here in this world, which Hakadosh Baruch Hu created and designed so that we should be able to enjoy this world as we are serving Him by studying Torah and doing mitzvahs and all of that uh, all of that other stuff. Okay. So Baruch Hashem, we made it another six lines in text. So we're, we're making progress. So hopefully, uh, you know, we will eventually, uh, you know, get all the way through this uh, this chapter. We'll hold it over here, which is highlighted, and we will um, uh, hold it for tonight, because we have to get to uh, tonight.